Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Post-Pandemic Dementia Care, Lessons Learned, Best Practice Approaches, and of course, the role of the caregiver. I'm Kate Valentino, and I am going to be your host on this podcast, so we'll go ahead and get started. What we're going to cover today, of course, is a big focus on post-pandemic dementia care. So we're going to talk about the impacts of quarantine and isolation, the impacts of COVID infections on the neurodegenerative diseases, obviously specifically dementias, because that's what we're going to be talking about today functional evaluation considerations, so different types of evaluations that had been, uh, let's say, prominent within the research following post-pandemic research and and really how they were looking at how everything came full circle, Uh, interventions to positively impact cognitive function, interventions to positively impact balance, and of course, interventions to positively impact ADL performance and quality of life. So hopefully, this is really going to be a total approach to care for everybody, and you'll be able to take something away that you can use next day in the clinic or uh, just kind of giving you a better idea of why you might be seeing some of the things that you're actually seeing with your dementia patients. We'll be talking about this in a variety of settings. So Hopefully, no matter where you're at, you're going to be able to find something that will work for your practice. Getting started, uh, of course, the impacts of quarantine and isolation. And if you're following along, um, we do have some resources for you. Uh, If not, maybe you're driving, maybe you're a home health therapist and you're driving from patient to patient and we're learning something at the same time, which would be fabulous. Please check out the resources. Um, There's some great visuals and stuff like that that kind of follow along. But just to get started, impacts of quarantine and isolation, really, really interesting what they were finding. Uh, I'll say interesting, not necessarily in a good way, but definitely sheds light into why we're seeing the things and the behaviors that we're seeing. So the impacts of quarantine on dementia patients revealed a profound increase in neurobehavioral symptoms. And this is really across the board in a lot of the different research. So have a couple of quotes in here from obviously some specific uh, studies that of course, are listed in your resource manual, but really, really important to understand we may have to change how we're looking at patients and how we're dealing with caregivers. The behavioral changes, the neuropsychological decline is a reoccurring theme. Like I mentioned, when it came to the severity, um, they actually found that there were trends based on the type of dementia. So the impacts of quarantine and isolation had the most impact on our patients that were suffering from Lewy body dementia, followed by our frontal temporal dementia patients, Alzheimer's, and then vascular dementia. And of course, we have our mixed dementias and things like that, but those were just ones that they could truly identify and put statistics with. So again, just kind of keeping that in the back of your mind in terms of where you may see patients heading or what you may expect as you go in and start working with patients um, that have had recent declines, what you can expect from a neurobehavioral standpoint. Another thing that was very interesting was caregiver health had a statistically significant decline due to isolation. 
as we look at the chart, I'll say irritability, depression, sleep changes, the anxieties, agitation, and apathy, those are kind of the, the biggest changes uh, with new onset, uh, actually finding sleep changes, agitation, and irritability. But for caregivers, insomnia and sleep changes, as well as depression, were their two biggest factors. And we're going to talk a little bit as we get into the treatment portion, specifically about caregiver health and what we can do to incorporate that in our plans of care. Of course, you know, being able to document training and things of that standpoint. From a medical research standpoint, um, there's actually a 77% decline and delay in research that was happening during the pandemic, meaning that all of the ongoing dementia you know, research and studies that were happening, a lot of those either had funding cut, they were delayed, they had to stop because of isolation, people not being able to get in. The project visions had to change, um, not only just because of the problems that we had in getting people together, but of course we were starting to see different things as quarantine and isolation, the days, the weeks, and the months started stacking up. Huge decrease in funding. Uh, also, they found that there was a loss of progression in jobs in research because, of course, these research studies were changing and stopping. And there was also decreased support for folks that were going into research trying to get answers and hopefully move forward with some of the best practice treatments. One thing that was positive, um, I'll say I take it as a positive, um, is that following the pandemic, they found a significant improvement in conference attendance. So people that are starting to share, and this is worldwide, uh, share information on what they're finding. People are really coming together a little bit more, which is fantastic. Uh, just kind of looking at who took the biggest hits in terms of not being able to conduct and pursue and continue research. Australia actually statistically took the biggest hit um, in losing kind of where they were at in the, the progression of dementia research. With folks, again, just to reiterate the impacts of quarantine and isolation, the biggest impacts were depression, irritability, anger, and insomnia. And we know, obviously, you know, thinking not just caregivers and patients, but, you know, as they work together in that dynamic relationship, you know, if folks aren't sleeping, that actually can increase cognitive changes and cognitive decline. Now, granted, it's temporary. So as you start sleeping and you can get on a better cycle, uh, you know, that the cognitive changes that you're going to get from loss of sleep will improve, which is wonderful. But just knowing that the quarantine and isolation actually led to increased sleep changes in insomnia, that was almost doubling down on the cognitive decline we were finding for a lot of our patients. So that was very tough. Uh, big things also that they were finding from quarantine and isolation loss of support and care just because of restrictions. Uh, one thing, you know, not just from kind of day-to-day -day support and care, but thinking medically, you know, think about your own communities, what was happening, how many, you know, restrictions were placed in terms of, you know, being able to get in and see primary care physicians or wellness checks and things like that. Uh, and I'll say globally, you know, this is something a lot of these, and again, it's great globally, you know, what are people doing right? Where were the challenges? How are we going to overcome them? And we're sharing information. But what they found is that a lot of the care was limited to emergencies only. And I think from a therapy standpoint, like all of us know, it is way easier to fix a small problem than waiting and having something just, you know, enormous blow up. So whether it be, hey, you know, I'm starting to experience 
you know, increased shuffling gait, thinking about our Lewy body patients, or if there's, you know, those increased behaviors that they were reporting or whatever it may be, you know, they're waiting until it escalates to something almost unmanageable. It becomes an emergent situation before you can get care. I think that's totally opposite of the way we approach problems and what we tell our patients to do. So again, it's just one of those battles that we were fighting. And that was part of that compounding problem of why quarantine and isolation was so hard on so many people is that they really weren't going in for things until it was an emergency situation. So it was a much harder situation to get control of, fix or whatever, you know, whatever it may have been. Other things that they found just statistically changes um, what they... uh, were able to document for our dementia patients. Um, they found an increase of 50% in just cognitive symptoms that they were experiencing. So just in general, cognitive decline symptoms and functioning. A 50% increase in worsening behavior and a 25% increase in new adverse behaviors. So that was compounding as well as a 36% decline in motor symptoms. So those are pretty profound numbers. And if you think about it, you know, that 50% in cognitive symptoms, that's going from being independent to mod assist or mod assist to, excuse me, total assist. If we think think of it just in in a percentage standpoint, as we break down, you know, min, mod, max assist, uh, same thing from, you know, managing behaviors, going through ADLs or going through mobility or trying to, I hate saying like, let's say guide a patient into an activity that we want them to to do as either a caregiver or a therapist, but having all of those increased behaviors that we're going to have to try and filter through in order to have safe participation. And then just from the motor symptoms, you know, thinking about like our PTs, I feel for you, the falls and balance, uh, you know, the shuffling gates and all of those different types of things that are really going to compound, you know, not only do we have potentially a dementia situation, but now we've got, you know, a decrease in, you know, motor functioning and that's leading to falls and fractures. And now we're in those emergent situations. So, Thinking of how much better we could have been potentially um, not waiting until, you know, it's an emergency situation and getting ahead, knowing that these are the numbers that they were able to document. Uh, Other things just to take note of, uh, forgetfulness, uh, because of quarantine and isolation, we lose our routines. And we know that routines are key for folks that do have dementia. They thrive on routine. So as we, uh, you know, pull away from that, increased forgetfulness because we're not following routines. We're not doing the things that we were normally doing. We're not being challenged in the same ways. We're home. We're in, you know, small little communities. We're not getting out. You know, we're not doing the, hey, you know, maybe it's rainy, but we can get, you know, maybe we can walk around a Target or a mall or, you know, something else. We're staying in very limited environments, which is going to pose limited, you know, challenges and activities increased in confusion. And again, we're not following the same routines that we were doing, you know, days of the week. And we know that, you know, Tuesdays, we always go in for this activity, or maybe there's something at a community center, or we were doing a group lunch or whatever it may be, you know, confusion, all that leads to, of course, temporal orientation problems. So forgetfulness, confusion, and temporal orientation were all key problems that they were finding, especially from quarantine and isolation, as they disrupted our patients and our caregivers' lives. So just things to make sure that we're being extra 
extra cognizant about uh, as we're going through and doing evaluations, but also asking, hey, have we had these changes? You know, are we seeing, you know, huge changes from where they were pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, not just progression of disease, but did we see, you know, a sharp decline? So that way we can kind of get an idea of what's been going on and what we're doing with, dealing with. Uh, impacts of COVID infections on neurodegenerative diseases. And again, this is really going to be looking at, say, a lot of research. Okay, now we've had folks that have had COVID infection. How is that actually impacting all of the tissues for folks that already potentially have compromised neuro tissue? Um, you know, is it worse? Is it different? Are they finding things are changing a little bit more for them? So they did find that there were worsened neuropsychiatric symptoms um, just reported overall um, during COVID-19, but there were definitely some very specific things that people that did suffer from COVID infections had a little bit more incidence of, is what we'll say. Um, you can see if you're looking at any of the resources, just things that were, you know, coming forward. Again, a lot of changes there. But what they did find is that actually cognitive decline was found to be three and a half times more frequent in COVID patients with dementia than COVID patients in general. Uh, they use the mini mental basic, you know, ADL, so your bathing, dressing, you know, just kind of general um, grooming type stuff and IADL performance. And this was specific to institutionalized patients. So think about, you know, if our patients just in general are already in assisted living or skilled nursing facilities requiring 24 hour care, how much worse is it thinking three and a half times more frequent for cognitive decline? How much more severe that is? Now we're looking at caregiver burden. You know, what are your care assistants able to handle? If you had patients that could get through, if you laid out clothing and they could, you know, get their shirt on and they could get their pants on with supervision while you could potentially be dressing a roommate or doing something. Now you have folks that are three and a half times, you know, more likely to have cognitive problems and not be able to process through some of those basic activities. It really is going to increase caregiver burden and potentially, I'll say moving forward, looking at other things, do we need to get increased care staff? Additionally, things that they found patient risk um, was due to problems with hygiene. So again, thinking about, you know, our dementia patients not always being able to obviously problem solve or recognize secondary and tertiary effects. Um, they may not be effective just depending on where they're at in the dementia spectrum. If they're, you know, early, if they're late stages or somewhere in the middle, uh, you know, they may go to the bathroom and then not wash their hands. Well, especially if they're moving around the community or doing different things, they are going to be subject, you know, if they're not practicing good hygiene for increasing germs and everything else that's going to go into their body. Uh, one thing I will say, not, I hate saying it's positive, but thinking about there was so much focus on looking at numbers and trying to get data on, you know, when people were getting sick and how people were getting sick and just kind of the numbers in general as a community and as a global community, that it does really shed light on some of the problems when it comes to dementia, looking at possible hygiene. So we know the numbers with COVID specifically because they are tracking that, but thinking about, can you generalize this potentially 
looking at just other types of common infections and things of that sort, as they identified hygiene as one of the biggest risks for dementia patients. Um, it had an increased rate of infection and transmission, um, you know, COVID in dementia patients. And again, that goes back to inadequate hygiene ability. So it's not just COVID, but everything else potentially that they could be or could have been exposed to or just, you know, in general everyday life. So hygiene is definitely something, you know, we talk about it, we think about it, and we know all of the, the different things that can go along uh, with folks that may have, you know, difficulty performing hygiene. But are we focusing on that, um, keeping it at the forefront of what we're looking at just to keep our patients healthy and to keep our caregivers healthy. So say so definitely just revisit hygiene and, uh, you know, for my OTs out there, cause I too am an OT, uh, just keep hygiene as one of those key, uh, ADLs, not just for COVID now that we finally got some numbers on it, it's great, but just thinking about keeping our patients healthy and safe moving forward. Uh, additional things that they found, you know, specifically for COVID infections, for folks with uh, the neurodegenerative diseases, and again, dementia, um, they did find that there was actually an increased incident in hospitalizations for patients that did have that APOE4 gene. Um, and that's something, you know, just looking at the increased risk of dementia, that's one of those risk factor genes, but they did find patients that were positive that did have that APOE4 gene they actually had higher hospitalizations. And what they were looking at from a study standpoint was a possibility just to the increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier in patients with that gene. So again, APOE4, you actually have increased blood-brain barrier permeability. So obviously applies to COVID. They're looking at that. Uh, what it meant from a COVID standpoint is it actually resulted in increased inflammatory responses just because of that cytokine production it was able to increase to the cytokine storm. But what else potentially could cross that blood-brain barrier? And again, just using this as an awareness for what our patients are going to be at risk for is really important. So when it comes to the COVID infections for our dementia patients, uh, really having the inflammatory risk factors was a big one. And we all know, I think we talk about inflammation a lot in a lot of the different courses because we know how hard it is on the body, but especially for our folks with that APOE4 gene, um, that's something that's going to be a little bit more of a higher risk for them compared to some of the other, of the other folks in the general population. So continuing on, um, say so we kind of talked about this, um, as we talked about the mini mental and, and the basic and IADL performance for the institutionalized patients, but that really does lead into the functional evaluation considerations. So when it comes to the post pandemic environment, there was a lot more, uh, I'll say looking at not just the patient, but also looking at the caregiver. It was a very holistic approach. And I feel bad that it unfortunately took a pandemic for folks to really understand how important the caregiver role is um, in any success of the patient. I think every single one of us as therapists, whether you're in acute care, you're an outpatient, you're, I'll say, in a SNF, an LTAC, or anywhere else, uh, you know, you've gone in and you've, you know, gone into an evaluate a patient, you're potentially have a caregiver, a family member, somebody who's there. And as you get going, you're like, oh, 
oh my goodness, like I think the patient may have been the better of the two as a caregiver. Uh, we've all run into this, but now there's a lot more data out there that's really looking um, at kind of the whole picture, uh, patient evaluation and caregiver evaluation. So again, sad that it took a pandemic to kind of make that happen. Um, but I'll say definitely good, at least that the focus is there now. So better late than never. Um, and it definitely helps support why we may make some of the recommendations that we are making. Um, and just, you know, everything fell on the caregiver's lap uh, during the global pandemic. And so a lot more out there to to kind of support why we make certain decisions and recommendations and requests for help. So Effective tailored activity programs. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit more. So just kind of looking at um, the support documentation for the podcast here as we get into treatments. But it had a huge evaluation component for the caregivers and the holistic approach. So for my OT folks out there, the uh, PEO approach, um, the theory of occupation, the per patient environment and occupation. Um, they looked at it from a patient environment and caregiver approach, um, and it was adapted from that PEO theory. Uh, so very interesting that they're taking this kind of a whole different level. Uh, but I think it does sum up kind of everything. And for those who aren't OT and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what PEO is. Um, it's looking at how the person, the environment, and the activity or the occupation all have to kind of be in perfect harmony in order to have good success and independence and obviously like safe performance. Um, so if one of those little circles is out, I'm thinking of you know, a diagram bringing it all together, uh, the activity itself is going to kind of fall apart. And so thinking about if you are a speech therapist and you could have, you know, the patient sitting up at the table, uh, you know, ready for lunch or whatever it may be, and you can have the, the caregiver right there and maybe it's food that they really like, but the caregiver is paying attention you know, or splitting attention between two patients and their tray is, you know, too far away. Or maybe, you know, in a home environment, you know, the food is too far away so the patient either can't reach it or can't see it and the caregiver may be on the phone. Or they're dividing their attention between the television and the patient. For my physical therapist, again, you know, just thinking about safety with any sort of piece of equipment or obviously from an environmental standpoint, like if there's doorways, you know, some of our patients that have really old homes may not have wide enough doorways to fit wheelchairs through and things of that sort. And you know how quickly things can fall apart. So that's the idea of the PEO theory, but they took that and applied it to the patient environment and caregiver for evaluations. And that's how things really have to come together in a functional component. So so caregiver-specific evaluations, they actually did some um, pretty interesting care case studies on this. One actually found a case of Wernicke encephalopathy in a dementia caregiver, um, and it was all because of poor nutrition for the caregiver. Um, and I think that is something that we have all encountered or we've come across, not necessarily anything surprising, but, you know, getting that in black and white and having it on data. You know, the caregivers are taking care of everybody but themselves. And how many times have you had to tell a caregiver, hey, if you don't take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of the patient? And again, a lot more focus on this post-pandemic because patients weren't, people weren't going into, you know, outpatient clinics as often or 
you know, they weren't receiving help until, you know, again, it was the emergency situation. And a lot of times, you know, that caregiver, if they're not taking care of themselves, I just saw that decline. So, um, the need for nutritional evaluation in family caregivers was one recommendation. So when we're going through functional evaluation considerations, and I'll say, especially, you know, folks that are in the home health setting, you kind of see this, like you're walking around the home, you, you can see what's sitting out on the counters, or, you know, if you're just, you know, as an afterthought, you know, can patients, you know, open the refrigerator, the cupboards, like take stock of what you're seeing. Uh, you know, what are you looking at? You know, are things, say, are things expired? Is it a good variety of, you know, meal choice items or whatever it may be? Uh, you're also seeing it, you know, not everybody can afford a really wide range of healthy options. So that's going to play into it. Uh, you know, what people are being served, what they like, what they'll eat. Um, I think these are all things that we kind of think about, but now they're really throwing it down on paper, like I said. Um, so big one um, was the thiamine, the B1, energy, metabolism, and neurohealth, um, you know, concentrating and having conversations on that. That was something that came out of the case study. So I definitely wanted to make sure uh, that we talk about that. Uh, big thing though, increased caregiver-patient relationship is going to be a primary focus because it actually impacts hospital readmissions and admission rates. So if we can improve the caregiver-patient relationship, we're going to have less hospital admissions or readmissions. And it was interesting. They looked at this from both community caregiver and they looked at it from healthcare professional as a caregiver to the patient. So best data supports, uh, you know, just different things to look at uh, as part of our evaluation. So as we go through, you know, we're doing our balance tests, we're doing our cognitive tests, we're doing our, you know, ADL assessments, we're doing our functional assessments, you know, how much, you know, assistance do they need or how strong are they or, you know, what kind of support um, from a postural standpoint. Um, but there were a couple of additional caregiver specific questionnaires uh, that came up and were recommended uh, within the research that care continuity continuity so care continuity across levels of care scale um, that was probably the number one that came in uh, another one that was interesting this is actually the patient doctor depth of relationship tool that was another one that's very specific to the patient and the practitioner um, but they did find it helpful looking at you know our you know, patients going to be potentially um, at risk there, you know, or is the relationship good, supportive um, to allow, you know, care to happen and not have those, you know, hospital admissions and things of that. Um, but a lot of continuity questionnaires looking at the caregiver. So if you're not already including the caregiver questionnaires, or at least looking at it as a component of what you're doing, I would recommend it. Uh, I think a lot of us um, during, you know, our seminars and things that we've done through Summit, you've probably heard us all mention a million times, sralab.org, which is just a website that does have a rehab measures database and you can filter by free and they have hundreds and hundreds of free standardized tests, questionnaires included. Um, I also included in the resources for this podcast, if you look, um, there's been a huge improvement I hate saying improvement, but I'll say, you know, easier access um, to questionnaires and testing tools from like the Alzheimer's organization and some of the, the national databases. So I included that 
as a kind of a little bonus area in your resources. So definitely check it out. Say, grab some of the things, bookmark the ones that you want. Uh, also, a lot of them have apps. So if you are somebody that's using, you know, a phone or a tablet or something like that, um, you don't have to say the days of paper are long gone. I'm probably dating myself here. But um, for folks that have been in the rehab world for, you know, 10 or 20 years like some of us, um, you can definitely like think back to that one paper copy you've had of something that has <laughs> been laminated, but it's got like coffee stains on it. Um, a lot more electronic resources. So they're at your fingertips, which is phenomenal. Uh, but research did promote including a caregiver questionnaire to assess the caregiver-patient relationship. Um, additional, you know, evaluation themes, of course, really, really looking at how somebody is performing tasks. Uh, don't discredit the weight of how we can do activity analysis and actually talk about the level of assistance that people do need. Looking both functionally from a physical standpoint and functionally from a cognitive standpoint. If you've been with me in any of my courses before, you've heard me say that a million times. Uh, don't talk just about the physical assistance that's needed. Talk about the cognitive assistance that's needed too, because that's going to play into that patient caregiver role. And can the caregiver actually provide that level of assistance? Or it's also going to help justify why you may have to have increased caregiver training. So make sure you're looking at both. Uh, additional ones, uh, that I definitely want to highlight that were recurrent evaluation themes in the research, the MOCA, the mini mental. And I always laugh about the mini mental because, you know, for a few years they'll charge for it and then they'll be like, no, it's free. And then they'll charge for it again. And I always kind of goes back and forth, but I'm um, usually widely available for everybody, which is great. And then also the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale. So if that's not one that you have checked out, I definitely would recommend doing so. And again, like I said, I've included the websites for the Alzheimer's associations that have, um, accessibility for practitioners to a lot of these different things. But uh, MOCA Mini Mental and the Alzheimer's Disease Assessment Scale were all big within the research. And again, they have good functional components uh, and include, of course, I'm going to reiterate it one more time, a caregiver scale as well. Is our caregiver able to provide the assistance that they need based on what we're going to do? And if we're going to make a recommendation that the caregiver has to be able to do certain things, they have to be at the level to do those things. And that's going to, again, justify high repetition, you know, a longer course of therapy or a shorter course of therapy, uh, just depending. So make sure that you're including all of those uh, if you can uh, with your evaluations. And maybe it's something you can do patient evaluations on day one, and then maybe the caregiver isn't available on day one. You have to do that on day two or, you know, another day or whatever it may be. Um, but keep it in your hip pocket. Definitely going to positively impact your outcomes. But moving on, uh, we're going to talk about interventions that came out to positively impact cognitive function. And this is really interesting. There's actually obviously a ton of research, uh, especially post-pandemic, because cognitive function took such a severe hit during the pandemic. So uh, just to, you know, go back, you know, the over 50% uh, of increase in cognitive symptoms definitely shed new light on the focus to impact cognitive function in interventions and how quickly patients can go down without that focus. So 
course, for us, we're looking at the non-pharmacological therapies. So things that we can do, obviously, we're not prescribing medications. We may be doing medication management with our caregivers, but specifically for our patients, um, we're obviously not going to be administering those. But a couple of things that I want to point out, again, if you're looking or have access to the resource guide, I have a couple of different um, charts and pictures that I want to make sure uh, we cover things like um, talking about kind of the different types of categories of NPT. So I'm going to use NPT because non-pharmacological therapy takes a long time. Uh, but for NPTs, um, most common ones that you read about, you hear about, uh, one I'll say maybe new, um, but the pho photobiomodulation, we're going to talk about that in a moment, uh, enriched environment, exercise therapy, computerized cognitive training, cognitive simulation therapy, and then of course, control groups. So for the diagram on the left, it was just looking at the effectiveness of different NPTs. Uh, I was, I was actually, I'm not even going to lie. I was surprised. Um, PBM, so the photobiomodulation was actually at the top, which was uh, pretty amazing. EE for enriched environment. Um, obviously, I'll say all of the interventions were better than the control group, um, but some just had a little bit bigger impact than others. Uh, ET is exercise therapy. CCT is the computerized cognitive training. Uh, one note on that, um, it was something that obviously, you know, from a pandemic standpoint, people had access to computers and doing things. Uh, but one of the studies said that they were actually not optimistic on that, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so they're, I'll say, kind of follow on, you know, looking at that more and things of that sort. Uh, the cognitive simulation therapy um, was a CST. So diving into that. I uh, want to make sure for this study, for the diagram that, again, if you're looking, you can kind of see, uh, they actually didn't look at, I'll say, just kind of dementia as a blanket term. Um, they really made sure that they were pulling patients that had a variety of neurodegenerative dementia diagnoses. So general dementia, Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, and mixed dementias. The CST and ET, so exercise therapy and cognitive simulation therapy, they found to be some of the most beneficial looking at quality of life. Uh, it actually had increased growth factors for exercise therapy, decreased inflammation. And again, our folks with that APOE4 gene inflammation was one of their uh, biggest problems because of that blood brain barrier. And they found improved cerebral blood flow, uh, which is really important. Obviously, you know, we're having neural reorganization and we want to make sure that, you know, if we can improve things from a neuro standpoint, uh, we need to have blood flow uh, with every other tissue that we're working on. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, for the PBM, so if you're like, oh my gosh, what is that photobiomodulation? Like, what? I've never heard of that one. Um, and it was interesting because I did try and go through some of the states, uh, just kind of regulatory boards for the different therapies, seeing um, if I could find any consistency on who is performing this and PAMs and all that kind of stuff. Because um, I will say from a physical therapy standpoint, definitely seeing more in the research, not seeing this um, as prominent on the OT side, uh, but just across the board in the medical side, it is huge. So PBM is light therapy with visible or near infrared light. Um, both lasers or LEDs could be used. So um, a couple of different kind of machine setups. So 
both are talked about pretty equally across the board within the therapy. And what it is, it stimulates and modulates cellular and bio processes. So PBM was actually found to have a pretty substantial impact um, at the cellular level for folks with dementias. Um, and again, I'm going to say dementias because they had a, a pretty mixed bag looking at different types of dementia um, in one study in particular that really focused uh, heavily on getting some PBM data. So very interesting there. But if you weren't familiar with what that is, uh, hopefully that shed some light on it. So you have some ideas for other types of you know, exercises and things that were going on, enriched environments, uh, what they found. So thinking about enriched environments, you know, having offerings for patients, things that are optimal from a modification standpoint, things of that sort. Um, they found enriched environments actually improve memory and thinking uh, for patients with dementia. They found it to be a little bit more dynamic in its simulation. So light, sound, color, any of the enriched environments had more cognizant focus on different things that were going to impact the patient. So again, you know, being able to move around and engage within the environment, there is always going to be that special focus on, okay, can they see, can they move? Can they, you know, get in? Is it safe? Is what they can, you know, grab from a shelf? Is everything in here something that they could potentially work with? So uh, enriched environment intervention. Um, so just kind of thinking about where we would tie this into our documentation. Of course, say exercise therapy. Uh, when it came to exercise therapy, we're going to talk a little bit more when we get into the balance, but varied techniques. Um, it wasn't just, hey, this is a one and done or this is best for all. And I think, of course, we know that for our patients. We know that for any of our patients, whether it's a dementia patient or somebody coming in for any sort of, you know, orthopedic physical dysfunction issue. Everybody's different. Everybody requires a different approach. Everybody has something different that's going to make them tick. Uh, like you get the people that are, they love, they're going to lift weights or they're going to, you know, run on the treadmill thinking outpatient or um, some of the machines in facilities are like, yes, I'm going to come down and do this. Um, and other people are like, I'm not going to sweat. So <laughs> don't even try. Um, but very technique. So. Again, as long as it was client-centered, that was kind of the big thing. Uh, but they did find, in general, a multi-component was better. So not just one type of exercise, not just, you know, cardio or resistance or, you know, sitting, standing, whatever it may be. Having a varied approach had better outcomes. And I don't think that's a shock. You need to vary the, the challenges that you're throwing at patients because they're going to have you know, variations throughout the day. Um, you know, they're going to be more tired and maybe their reactions are going to be a little bit slower or thinking about folks um, with the, you know, behavioral or, you know, sleep changes and they're going to be a little bit tired or maybe, you know, they're having, you know, they're up at night. We'll use that. You know, the, the light is going to change. So, you know, how they're going to react to the environment for that, or they've been standing. It's at the end of the day. So uh, maybe they're a little weaker in one area. So just making sure that, of course, you know, we're thinking about when we're treating patients from an exercise, you know, component, what is everything that is needed in order to keep them safe in, you know, various different challenges. So uh, multi-component was definitely better across the research. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And then for the cognitive simulation therapy, so CST, um, with repetitive tasks, they did find this better. And I don't want to throw anybody off if you're sitting there like, oh, she just said a multi-component multi is better. Yes. Okay. Thinking about exercise. 
for repetitive tasks, uh, thinking about, let's say, uh, just the first example that came to my mind, maybe we have patients that were jewelry makers and they're stringing beads, or maybe it's somebody that used to do woodworking and they're sanding, like they can, they can get that movement going and be successful with repetition. So that was one of the things. And just thinking again, you have a spectrum of dementia where, you know, yeah, mild dementia, you're going to be able to filter through tasks a little bit better. But thinking in the whole scope of dementia, you're going to have folks that may only be able to follow one or two steps. So um, having something that can be repetitive that a patient can manage themselves, again, you know, better for the patient, better for the caregiver. Um, Of course, you know, different types of activities, games that may have some repetition. They did find that cognitive simulation therapy can also develop new neural synapses and myelinated neural circuits. So you are going to have changes in your neuroanatomy. And of course, we're dealing with cell death. Uh, for a lot of these folks, you know, things are getting strangled by the plaques and tangles of the different proteins in the dementias. So being able to develop new synapses and obviously the neural circuits, um, that's going to lead to better neural reorganization. Uh, and so, of course, we're going to have better cognitive function because there's going to be pathways for this information to travel. Looking back up to the slide just on the resource, um, I did include the website just because if you're like, oh my gosh, where do I start? I think that's the hardest thing. Like you get all this great information and it's awesome, but how do you apply it? What do you do with it? Um, So the Alzheimer's store actually has a whole bunch of games and activities. um, And I'll say they're not outrageously priced. There's a pretty good range. Um, but reminiscence therapy was another big one, huge impact on cognitive function. So I took, I just pulled the picture of one of the games. They have games that were made specifically for patients with dementia and it's all about us. And it goes through the decades of life. Um, and again, I feel like you're assuming like somebody may, you know, be in their eighties already. They may only be in their seventies and that's just fine. But it talks about reminiscing. And we know for folks with dementia, of course, you know, their procedural and long-term memory is going to be strongest the longest. So a lot of these games and activities are developed around that. But having those opportunities for success and, again, having, you know, a positive impact on their neuroanatomy, most definitely worth it. So if you haven't checked that out, again, and it can just be a good kind of way for you to jog your mind and think about possibilities, you know, things that you can develop or what do you have access to within your clinic or your hospital or in the patient's home. So check out the Alzheimer's store. If for nothing else, just some really good ideas for games and activities that you can do with patients with dementia. So continuing on though, talking about interventions to positively impact balance. So I am a big supporter of looking all over for resources. You know, everybody is going to take a different approach. Every patient needs something a little bit different. So the uh, resource guide actually includes, they call it six dementia-friendly exercises for balance and strength. Um, But if you look, um, what they use in the little guide here for the six exercises, I have... I do laugh because there's one, they're kind of in front of a piece of furniture. And I think we're all like, don't do, don't be a furniture walker. Oh my goodness. Um, But thinking about like a counter or something like that at home. So that's where I would kind of make the modification and make sure that I'm, I'm focusing on that. But it's either using a chair or a counter. 
So just doing sit to stands, um, you know, repeating it throughout the day, up and down. I always say, you know, once you get somebody moving, they're fine. Uh, but it's that, tr that transition can be a little bit shaky. So working specifically on transfers and doing that throughout the day. And again, you they can kind of get into the groove. They can anticipate what they need to do. Whether you're in a hospital, a home health situation, an outpatient clinic, a SNF, an LTAC, wherever you may be, you're going to have access to a chair. Uh, doing heel raises. That's another one. Toe raises. You know, and again, thinking about folks walking over different types of terrain. And this was something that they found, especially for patients that were, you know, isolated, quarantined, everything on the pandemic. They were not in challenging environments. They were working or were walking around their home. We're moving around their home, maybe on their property, but now all of a sudden, you know, the world opened back up and they're going to doctor's appointments and they're going out to lunch and they're going out to dinner and they're going shopping or wherever else that they, you know, may be going uh, with their caregivers and they're faced with those environmental challenges again. Um, things that they didn't have to do. So are we going through and exercising all of those different types of components to allow them to mobilize over different types of terrain? doing one leg stands. Uh, that's actually something that has been prominent, you know, across the board in a lot of neuro research, just in general, let's say any of my PTs out there, you're like, oh my gosh, yes, it's like amazing. And it's something that people can understand. Um, you know, none of this stuff in general has a very complicated goal in mind. You know, people know what a heel raise, you know, raise your toes, stand on one leg. Caregivers can understand that. So really, really nice. Uh, toe heel stands and toe heel walking. Uh, so those were all components that were included just in this little guide of say, you know, if nothing else, you know, you got six days, pick one a day and go for it. Uh, they did find that intensity, duration, uh, frequency is going to play into outcomes. So I think really for folks that I see this a lot on outpatient, maybe home health as well, because you guys are kind of facing similar challenges that you may be working with the patient once or twice a week, maybe, maybe three times a week if it's like a high, quote unquote, a high frequency patient um, in that setting. But it's something that they have to keep going, you know, just doing it for 30 minutes or an hour with you a couple of times a week isn't going to be, you know, that lasting impact. So finding things that are going to be able to be easy to incorporate, uh, things that caregivers can do. And that was, again, the big thing, you know, we have to have caregivers be able to have, you know, active participation in our home programs or any of the programs that we're doing. Even thinking about, you know, the restorative side, you know, CNAs uh, and assistants that may be working with our patients that may be institutionalized. So, Intensity, duration, and frequency will play into outcomes. A uh, couple of just simple things, again, that came up uh, from the research and thinking about, all right, what were the problems, what they were seeing from a pandem pandemic standpoint to where patients are now. <clears throat> and a big one, um, patients weren't given the opportunity to sit unsupported. And you think about it and, you know, think about where you find your patients when they're, you know, in their house or they're in a clinic or whatever it may be. I'll say, the most prominent chair in the clinics that I've worked in, whether it's, you know, hospital, SNFs, outpatient, and even thinking about chairs that patients are choosing to sit in from a home health perspective, um, they're usually pretty, I'll say hopefully pretty comfortable, but they have supports, you know, ladder supports, armrests on either side. There's a back support and that's where they're at. 
you know, we will get folks on a mat or we will get folks edge of bed and we're doing different things and we're leaning and we're reaching and we're challenging all of these different components. But really look at what a patient is doing day in and day out. And are they given the opportunity to sit unsupported? Because that was one of the things that they found was missing during the pandemic that was leading to, of course, you know, falls and balance issues and everything else that was compounding, you know, to get to those emergent situations is that they weren't getting challenged from a postural standpoint, you know, and this is something, it doesn't have to be, you know, very dramatic, you know, they're going to be caregivers that, you know, can't get patients to, you know, the edge of the bed and, and really challenge them because they may not have the, the physical prowess to support them should that patient, you know, tip over or whatever may happen. Uh, but even, you know, just scooting forward off the back of the chair or, you know, from if maybe they're sitting on a couch instead of, you know, sitting right next to the arm, you know, having them scoot just a little bit to the side. So the caregiver can sit on one side, you've got the arm on the other side, um, but you can do some, some basic leaning and reaching there. So giving patients the opportunity to sit unsupported uh, was a big recommendation. It's simple, but it's easy to implement, hopefully, um, for our patients and getting that going, you know, throughout the day. Uh, another one that also had a big impact was scooting. Uh, and also anybody that's worked in a hospital... <laughs> like a million times a day. Anybody that's worked in a skilled nursing facility or an LTAC a million times a day. How many times have you had to run around and be like, can you help me scoot a patient up in bed? A lot. <laughs> like I have nightmares about this. Um, but just having that as an activity where I'll say initially in the, the early process of dementia, you know, they might have pretty good function overall. You know, it's early dementia, you know, they can use aids and reminders and all these different things, but get these activities going quickly. And again, you know, a lot of folks backed off from some of the care that they were, were receiving during the pandemic. Again, researchers were like, okay, what are we missing? What did we lose? What are some of the things that can be easy for caregivers to implement because they're taking on more and more of the roles now more than ever, you know, patients are going from acute care setting to home. Stuff that they can do that had a big impact scooting. Uh, so, you know, just taking somebody from the foot of the bed and having them slowly scoot up to the head of the bed. Um, so that way they can be in a good position to lay down and go to bed. But really, really important from a balance standpoint, uh, very positive impacts for caregivers, uh, because again, they may not be able to reposition the patient. So trying to get some of those types of activities going early on. So that way that exercise can be part of the you know, procedural memory where the patient, you know, becomes reflexive. They know what to do. So if you don't incorporate scooting, uh, scooting was one that they did recommend. So a couple of hopefully good tips for you and things that came out of the research that they found were missing. So continuing on, uh, interventions to positively impact ADL performance and quality of life. So I did mention ESP, uh, the environmental skill building. Uh, it was something that came up with that PEO, that person, occupation, and environment. Uh, but other things that came out from a lot of these studies, uh, TAP programs, so tailored activity programs. Uh, those are programs that have excellent evidence-based support. Um, they're, again, rooted in that PEO theory of occupational therapy. So the person, the environment, and the occupation or the activity, excuse me, are all coming together. 
uh, to make a patient successful. And I'll say if you're a speech, if you're a physical therapist, you know, thinking about, of course, you probably have very similar theories and, uh, you know, all of your domains, you know, how everything comes together for success. But it's just, I'll say, very neat to see medical research actually pulling from therapeutic theories and be like, wow, this is this is really the way we need to do it. You're like, yes, I've been saying this for five years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever it may be. Um, and they're like, you were right all along. Um, so if you needed that victory today, um, it's pretty awesome to see the therapy theories coming into medical research and be like, they knew what they were talking about all these years. They just, they got it dialed in. And you're like, yes, yes, we do. Um, so tailored activity programs, for both um, the patient and the caregiver kind of thinking about everything because you have to assess the caregiver for this. Again, <clears throat> it's not just the patient because the caregiver is probably going to be leading it. So especially thinking about um, folks that are going to be going home. So whether it's acute care, it's going to be a discharge at home, you know, anticipating patients going home um, for outpatient, same thing. And of course, home health. But what this was, again, thinking about pandemic, caregivers were the ones that were doing a bulk of the care. So uh, that's why a lot of this is coming to fruition. So assess the caregiver, assess the patient, make sure that you're assessing the environment, um, but you have to teach the caregiver how to implement activity programs. Um, and it came, one thing came up repeatedly in research as a technique for caregiver training was role-playing. So have the caregiver obviously be the caregiver and then you be the patient. Have them practice with you uh, and have them, you can go both ways, but get them, you know, so they can be the patient kind of, you know, step into somebody's shoes and see how it feels, but get them to be confident and get their ownership of any program to be just routine for them. Like they could do it in their sleep. They know what they need to do for people with this, it's it's going to decrease the burden. It's going to increase their ability to cope with whatever is going on. So train and problem solving skills to manage dependence. Uh, really, really important. So for, you know, patients in the community, again, look at what assistance is available in the community. If it's something that, you know, requires, you know, it's the, it takes the village. Uh, but, Give caregivers the ability to find help should they need it. So coping and burden are going to be more manageable for them. So big things coming out of the research there. Um, as I mentioned, those ESP, the environmental skill building programs, uh, huge modifications. So modification to activity, uh, potentially modification, obviously, to the environment. So home modifications, problem solving skills, and skill building. Uh, ACT, Advanced Caregiver Training, so ACT programs. There's actually four components that they emphasized within the research for ACT programs, uh, changing and training for environmental changes, implementing and training on assistive technologies, simplifying communication, and I cannot stress that one enough. And that's times, you know, I'll be going through and I think I'm breaking something down great. Like, all right, I know my activity analysis. I'm doing awesome. I will go to my speech therapist because communication, like that's, that is their bread and butter. You have experts at your fingertips. Uh, collaborate with each other. 
I don't ever expect anybody to know everything. I know I don't know everything. Um, I'm going to go to the expert and whatever it is that I have a question on. And then I'm going to get, again, some of the best information. So simplify communication. So if you're giving cues, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, maybe you need to break it down even more. And if you're like, gosh, how do I break this down? Or what could be another way to say this? Because I don't feel the caregiver is, they're not, they're not catching what I'm throwing down. <laughs> However I'm doing it, it's just not working. Um, you know, ask somebody else, how would you phrase this? How would you break this down? Uh, but making sure that we are really focusing and emphasizing on simplifying communication. And that's the communication that caregivers are giving patients. Um, again, I can understand, you know, they're rushed, they're trying to do things, you know, we've all seen this, but again, the numbers find, I feel bad saying finally got behind it because of the pandemic. Um, but this is now all in black and white. So simplifying communication, the directions and the cues that we are giving patients during activity programs, making sure number four is involving the patients in the task and how to do that. We know the, the golden, you know, do with, not do for, because when we do for, we create independence. And that's very, very tough. Uh, and again, thinking about when pandemic hit, isolation, it fell on the caregivers and they just needed to get stuff done. Like snappy, snappy, they're, they're doing everything. So sometimes they just needed to speed it up. I don't fault them for it, but unfortunately, we all know that leads to learn dependence and it's going to cause, you know, all of those functions to decline quickly because patients are not using the skills that they still have. So making sure we're looking at, you know, different components and even breaking it down. Okay. I know if you're running late for an activity, <laughs> you know, you, you can't take an extra 45 minutes potentially or an appointment or whatever it may be to do things, but pick one thing. Um, you know, if it's, you know, the worst case scenario, trying to get out the door somewhere, pick one thing that the patient can do. But then, you know, have a list, you know, what can your loved ones do each and every day? What do they still have the ability to do? And how often are we giving them the opportunity to do that? Uh, you know, if we need to have, you know, just a little dry erase board so we can, you know, if it's something that's changing potentially frequently or, hey, we're still learning what the patients can do safely on their own or with supervision or, you know, given whatever it is, you know, give the activity. How much assistance? How long is it typically taking for the patient to complete that activity? You know, do they do better in the morning or the evening? Is there, a, you know, a change in that? But getting all of that information out to the caregiver so that way they can apply it and take it and use it right away is really, really important. Uh, a couple of the big focus areas uh, that were good for patients and caregivers in terms of ADL and quality of life, dressing, because uh, that's something that has to happen every day. So if patients can sustain components of dressing, because again, has to happen every day, dressing and undressing, you know, getting up in the morning and going to bed, uh, that's something that will help kill caregivers and have better quality of life for caregiver and patient. Bathing, another one, uh, what can they do? What are the approaches? Uh, thinking about communication, grooming, and then feeding. So dressing, bathing, grooming, and feeding were the huge focus, excuse me, ADLs that had both good performance capabilities or potential for patients and good performance options and implications for quality of life. So from interventions to positively impact ADLs and quality of life, activity programs doesn't have to just be ADLs, but 
obviously, you know, talking about ADLs because we're always from an OT standpoint assessing that. But for, you know, speech therapists and for physical therapists, what do patients want to do? The tailored activity programs found go back, you know, go back to the procedural and long-term memory. You may see a couple of pictures in the resource guide. Photography was one. You know, can patients get out? and take pictures of things? Or what can they take pictures, you know, within their home, on their property? Where do they like to go? Gardening, you know, any activity that they've done across their life lifetime or lifespan, what's been important to them? So those are all of the things as you go through an activity program, you know, it's going to be multifaceted. It's not just an OT thing, it's a PT thing. Um, and everybody has to come together, you know, obviously it's a speech thing to make it effective. You know, if it's a divide and conquer, hey, we're focusing on this, you know, can they hold the camera safely? Do we have to modify a grip or something like that? Do we have to do high contrast for a button? I'm just looking at the picture of the camera right now. So I'm kind of thinking a camera in general. Uh, you know, where do they have to mobilize to? Can they even hold, thinking about vestibular function, you know, can they hold up the viewfinder and sustain their balance? Is this a sitting or a standing activity? You know, how far can they reach in? But all of these different things, talk about what they like to do across their their lifetime uh, and see what you can incorporate as a tailored activity program and keep that going. And hopefully that's something that caregivers have already been participating in. If it hasn't been recently, it was something that was, you know, part of, you know, their lifestyle. I'm thinking a married couple as a couple or as a family, because um, there's, you know, of course, folks that can have early onset of some of the different types of dementia. And you know, there's going to be more than one person potentially um, as a caregiver within the home. So know your patients, um, one of the best things you can do. But everything from a post-pandemic standpoint, uh, really focused on assess the caregiver, assess the patient, look at things that, of course, are going to impact cognition and are sustainable. Um, making sure that we are doing kind of a total approach to care. And a lot of our barriers and things that we have talked about are things, I feel bad again saying that the research is now saying they were right all along. So with that being said, I know that we are at our hour. So hopefully uh, you've gotten something out of this and you can, you know, look at things a little bit differently Incorporate things just a little bit differently as you move forward, uh, wherever you may be with your patients. Check out the resources again. Um, it's going to give you direct links into assessment and treatment options and, and resources for you as a practitioner and, of course, for your patients. So hopefully I will uh, talk to you guys again, um, either a live course or a webinar. And thank you for everything you do. Take care. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.